The following audio is from the King's Chapel. You can find out more about our church at thekingschapel.org. I love that. That's uh, great stuff. And thank you for the uh, intro, uh, Mark. We certainly do need servants in the back for our children. And uh, I I appreciate you uh, uh, rehearsing that again. Uh, Repetition is the mother of knowledge. I, I teach the kids, I coach that. And we're going to be repeating some things this morning in this passage. That's a good thing. It's safe for you and it's good for us. Here's where we're going. Uh, we're going to rapidly look at some stuff, but I want to make a few announcements because I'm just excited about it and I'm kind of crazy. Those of you that have been here 40 years know this. Uh, Ryan Crone is now a uh, United States Army uh, Ranger. Hello, Alyssa now has a baby inside her. Praise the Lord for both of those things. We're very proud. Uh, of you, Ryan. Very proud. You're a tiger. God bless you. Good job. Uh, Lisa Marie Cook, uh, we got to see the funeral of her dad. He, she di- he was a godly uh, Christian minister in Akawi, I think it's called Hawaii. And he is, was just a prince among men. Uh, and uh, she, although she misses him, she did such a beautiful job uh, praising and honoring her father at the service that we saw on the internet. The next thing is, please vote. Please vote. It's a, it's, an, a, it's a free thing. You're free not to vote, but I trust you to vote in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. At least I know you'll seek him for his will and purpose, so please vote. The next thing is uh, I, just an announcement to surprise them this morning. Joshua and Rebecca Lee. Joshua was just, uh, except I think at his fourth medical school. He's a, a Navy guy, and he's just doing great. I'm proud of you. I'm proud to be associated with, with you. Here's the problem with people like Joshua and so many of you. You're too smart. You're too smart. I can't get away with being terrible. So um, I I do my best. Pray for me. And uh, this morning, what we're going to do in God's providence is, and is, um, in his providence, uh, we sang a song at the end this morning. It was not planned. We, (laughs) oh, don't get me into planning. Here's where I'm going. It wasn't planned, but we did, even when I don't feel it, you're working. Even when I don't see it, you're working. And that uh, is the summation of maybe what I want to say this morning. Uh, God bless Pastor Lon Solomon. He used to always say, so what? And so many do. So we give you some Bible teaching. We do uh, run through some scripture. Well, what's the point? The point is this. At the end of the day, it is this. All things, all things. Well, I call this thing the governor just because, or governor just because we're going to be talking about a governor. He represents every man. But in all things, things, you'll remember one of all of our favorite scriptures, and I'm going to read the whole thing because I'm crazy, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, even when I don't feel it, he's working. He's working it together for good, even when I don't see it. That's called faith. That is almost the definition of faith. Faith is the, the mystical wondrousness of a holy God who we cannot see, and yet we feel the wind of his spirit. We feel the touch of his hand in a supernatural way when we desperately need it. And that is Paul's story. For those whom he foreknew, that's you, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of your son. He's going to make you like Jesus in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, this is the Apostle Paul speaking, and as we look at the passage this morning, 
These are the things that are going in his mind as he's standing before Felix, the governor of a certain province, really the governor of Judea. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified, just as if I'd never sinned. There's a lot of definitions to justify, but it is being given a righteousness that is not our own. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. You're his. He's praying for you. He's not condemning you. Even when I don't feel it, he's working. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Can the worst life brings us? Can our emotions lie to us to say that he is not working? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. This is the heart of the Apostle Paul. As he's going through the passages, in a sense, the life that we're going to be describing in the book of Acts. No, in all these things, no matter what comes, he's saying, no matter what comes, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, thank you. Amen. You're, you're amening the Lord Jesus and his love for you. In Acts 23, I'm going to uh, not read some of this, but just remind you, Paul's before the council. He's being persecuted basically for absolutely no reason, none, except his hope that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He, he is the one who was to come, the crucified one, the buried one, the risen one. And for holding to that position, he is being tormented. Hence the scripture we just read in the high priest Ananias, who is a crook, who is a loser, who is a scoundrel, and we pray the Lord saved him before he died, commanded those who stood by Paul when he is simply defending himself to punch him in the face. And he says, and I'll go on, now we, we've gone over this. Uh, what you need to know is wherever Paul went, he was met with all the things we just described in the Romans passage. All kinds of separation, all kinds of tribulation. He went through absolutely everything. And he finds himself in prison after being in Jerusalem and something horrible had happened. Riots had formed around him. He stopped everything with the help of the Roman soldiers and he used that, here's what I mean, even when we don't feel it and he didn't feel it, he's working. He gave the story of seeing the resurrected Lord Jesus to thousands of Jewish people. Even when I don't see it, He's working. We have some, for Americans, pretty tough times at the moment. I'm not going to go into a political diatribe. I don't have time. We are always at risk in a sense. We are always open to persecution. 
And yet the God who created the heavens and the earth is with us, even when we don't feel it. When Paul is there in the square, in the temple uh, grounds somewhere, the Lord Jesus opens his mouth to speak loving words of resurrection power to a people that he came to save. Paul has come to the city to give money from the Greeks, as much money as he can to care for those who are suffering in a time of persecution. Jewish people. Paul is Jewish. Hello. Because he believes in what the scriptures teach, he's being persecuted. It says here in Acts 23, 11, the following night after he's been through this, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. In spite of the agony, in spite of the embarrassment and the humiliation, God worked this together for good for the man who loved him, who was called according to his purpose. Whatever happens in this society or in any country, I know that to be absent from this body, if they cut my head off, is to be present with the Lord. That's what the Bible says. That's what it says. And you're right to say, yes, sir, because that is not my word. It is the word of the Holy Spirit of God who penned this thing. Paul is told, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath. And you'll remember the story. A number of Jewish soldiers came after him. Uh, Roman soldiers came after him. And uh, uh, forgive me. They were Jews who were attempting to murder him. And the Roman soldiers defended him. They were on horse and, and, and on foot. They basically surround him because a little boy, as best we can tell, comes to the tribune or tribune, who is the, normally the commander of a thousand people, and says there's a group of 40 men who have dedicated everything in their life, who have sworn with an oath that they will die if they do not do this. They're going to kill the apostle Paul. The boy is taken to the uh, tribune, and the uh, tribune herds it. So the tribune dismissed the young man, verse 22 of Acts 3, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. This guy's a ranger. Then he called two of the centurions and said, get nearly uh, ready 200 men with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor, and he wrote a letter to this effect. It is very precise. It is very uh, almost business-oriented. Lovely note. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor, Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. It took care of their own. God took care of his own. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he had been accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you that what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul 
and brought him by night to Antipatris. Basically, this was a point halfway between Jerusalem and Caesarea. It's, uh, it's, it's important for you to know that's a, a distance of between 60 and 70 miles, Jerusalem to Caesarea. Caesarea was where the Roman, um, shall we say, legislature, the power of Rome was seated, not in Jerusalem, not in a Jewish enclave, rather more of a possession of, of the Romans. And in fact, a, a praetorium there, that, which was the place for the governor, actually in an attempt to weld the two communities in a certain way, or that's what I suspected anyway, Herod the Great had built this monument, this place for government. Good for him. Wondrous. But what is going on here is there is an attempt by the Romans to care for this man. They don't want war. They don't want sedition. They don't want rebellion. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with them. And when they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. Speaking to Paul, he asked what province he's from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, which was a Roman province, which had the rights of certain protections given it by the Roman, if you will, law, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's, Herod the Great, the great builder of, of um, uh, everything that was almost noble and notable, aqueducts, temples, you name it, Herod the Great had done it. And here they are in one of his dwellings. The center of government was not in Jerusalem. It was here. And the man that was in charge of the government at this time was a man named Felix. For some years, he had governed Judea. He knew it well. His wife was a Jewish woman. Her name was Drusilla. And he had also been in charge of Samaria for several years. He knew something about the Jews. He also knew plenty about something called the way. Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And early in the church, the movement by, by some was called the way, speaking of their way of life, but also their allegiance to the man who said he was the way. Now, this individual, Felix, had been a slave. He had been a Roman slave, but he was a, a very interesting personality, the way he could work people. He was obviously, in certain ways, very clever. And he was tied to a man whose name was Pallas. His brother was named P-A-L-L-A-S. And Pallas was also a slave. But again, he was a very creative, clever man. And he ingratiated himself to such a degree with the man who was going to be emperor, Nero, that he was able to dragnet both himself and his brother up to heights of uh, prominence in a Roman society. Felix had risen first to be a free man and then a governor. William Barclay says he was the first slave in history ever to become the governor of a Roman province. Tacitus, the Roman historian, said of him, and this is said by every commentator because it is so germane, he exercised the prerogatives of a king and the spirit of a slave. That is not a compliment in this particular thing. To be a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ is to be a free man. It's a wonderful thing to be a servant of the Lord. But in this particular instance, 
This is saying this guy was rough hewn. He was hard. He was cold. So cold, in fact, that he had some of his best friends, when they displeased him, executed or murdered. He was married three times to different princesses of uh, the realm, of the Jewish realm. Finally, he married through a chicanery a woman whose name was Drusilla. She was married to another gentleman. He schemed, he created, he did everything he could. He was immoral, he was a scoundrel, he was a murderer, he was a sensualist, and he found a way sometimes, some way into her heart and probably into her bed and joined himself with power in this particular area. The second woman that he had married was the granddaughter of Anthony and Cleopatra. The third, Drusilla, was the daughter of Herod Agrippa I. Now, that doesn't matter. There are so many Herods in this period. I, I can tell you the commentators get confused, and they're not sure which is which sometimes, but you can know that this guy had worked and weaseled his way to the top. He was clever, if nothing else. There was corruption in this era. Titanic corruption. It was scary. Your leaders would lie to you. They would do head fakes night and day. They would do anything to stay in power. But the sovereign God was still working out his plan. Even when we do not feel him, he's working. And after five days, Acts 24, 1 through 6, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. This is their attorney. They brought in a hired gun, and they laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him. Now, I have the Bible dot is. It's a wonderful tool. It's, it's done in, I think now, hundreds of languages sent out to the world. And some of them have music in the background and drama. And they bring in this actor to read this, and I can't do it the way he does it, but I've got to take a step. At, at, at just talking a little crazy here, Tertullus began to accuse him, Paul, saying, first he's going to talk to Felix, and we'll all recognize the fawning ridiculousness of the man. Since through you, I just described this guy, I do, yeah, I'm going to use you as, as Felix, okay. Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. I feel a little ill reading this. I, I don't know any of you. It's a little like, are you kidding me? But to detain you no further, I beg in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man... A plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Now, what he's doing is he's accusing uh, Paul of that which is most fear-provoking in the Roman leadership concept. Riots in the streets, large mobs. We have tasted a little of that in our dear country. And these guys are frightened beyond belief. They have a mighty and powerful army. They have people to protect them. But if the crowd goes crazy, their heads are going to be on the chopping block or they're going to be hung with nooses until dead. And this guy is not only fomenting rebellion and civil war in essence, but he's a ringleader of the sect 
of the Nazarenes. Remember, Felix knows a lot about this. His wife is Jewish. He's been in this area forever, and he's listening. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By, by examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. That was a cosmic lie. That was so much baloney you could cut it with ten knives. And here is Paul's response. This Tertullus guy, uh, I guess you want him as your attorney because he'll certainly defend you. But he was as corrupt in heart as he could possibly be. He calls Paul a revolutionary, a stirrer up of trouble, the great Roman fear. He was a, a, a head of the sect of the Nazarenes, this new sect of Jews that in some way was critically perverted. They were bad people, bad, bad, bad people the Nazarenes were. And, and, and this period was one of the few times when they were called the Nazarenes because they had, had identified, obviously, with the man who came from Nazareth, the Lord Jesus. He brought before them the fact that Paul had defiled the temple. We've talked about that before, and I don't have time to hit it, but it was one more lie. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, okay, your turn, Paul. Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheer cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or the synagogues or the city. You'll remember he is there going through the rites of purification. I cannot describe the process again, except he is utterly Jewish in his aspect. He has come to this state to give money to those who are perishing through starvation, probably primarily Christian Jews who are being persecuted for their faith. Nevertheless, he brings offerings in for himself and the men that he's in who have had their heads shaved and gone through all kinds of processes to be right before the Jewish magistrates in this area. And there was a man he had been with during the course of the week, a man whose name was Trophimus from um, Ephesus. But they accused him of bringing him into the temple, which was an automatic death penalty for that guy. In other words, they're accusing him of everything possible in order to destroy and defeat him. But this I confess to you. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me, but this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the pro prophets. He didn't say he was trusting the law to save him or that his performing the law would save him. He said, I believe in the word of God and in the inspiration of scripture, if I may pile on top of it what he is, or unpack, as everybody loves to say now, what he's really saying. Everything written down by the law and the, written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, and that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust, so I take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came bring to, to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, and we know about them if we've been going through this, they ought to be here before you. And to make an accusation, should they have anything against me or let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council? You say it. 
Other than this one thing I cried out while standing among them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. Remember that. He mentions the resurrection over and over and over every time he's persecuted. Why? Because everything he does is about one thing, testifying to the grace of God and that if I die, I can live again in glory and wonder, forgiven, cleansed, renewed, put on my feet. And here he is in another setting, and his primary thing when all the smoke clears is to speak of the resurrection. And as he reasoned about, after some days, I'll start it here. After some days, Felix, the meeting ends. Paul said what he has to do. He is kept in custody, but must have some liberty, Felix said, and that none of his friends should be preventing from attending to his needs. Here, let me shorthand this. Our time is limited. What goes on here is Paul has demonstrated to these people in context, if you understand what went on in the past, Half of the people who tried him disagreed. The Pharisees disagreed with the Sadducees in the room when he was tried. And the people from Asia haven't even shown up for the prosecution. There is no evidence against him. There is no law against what he's done. He is an entirely innocent man. And Felix, here he is again, makes a deal where you're just going to prison. And as we know, for a few years, having done nothing, Felix has no guts, no character, no nothing. Paul is condemned. In a sense, I like to think it is God's hand giving him somewhat of a vacation. After some days, Felix came in with his wife, Drusilla, and here is where I will conclude, who was Jewish. And he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned, Paul, about righteousness... Perhaps he spoke of the law and its beauty. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal. The beauty of that. And self-control, that self-control is something the Holy Spirit gives to the individual. And he's speaking these things to two of the most unself-controlled people on the planet. And finally, and he talked about the coming judgment. That one day God is coming and calling all, resurrecting both the, the just and the unjust. And they will in some sense have to stand before him and give account for what they have done in the body. And it says here that Felix was alarmed. Go away from the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that some money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Now, here's the idea I want to conclude with. No matter what we feel or see, he is working. He has spoken to the Jewish people in the square in Jerusalem. Now he's speaking to those who are leaders in Caesarea. He has spoken to Asia 
through the Apostle Paul of the resurrection of Jesus. And here he is with Felix and Drusilla, and he's telling these incredibly unself-controlled people that there is a true way that is different, that is exciting. And he said to them, in a sense, what Paul said in Romans, therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges for and passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice these things. Do you suppose, O man, that those who judge, uh, that those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the just judgment of God? This is Paul's gospel in Romans. And this is what he's discussing with this guy, or at least that's my assumption. He's saying that you're broken, that a day is going to come where you will have to stand before God and give, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Is God kind? In sending his son, is he loving? Is he everything possibly good and beautiful? Yes, and yet not knowing God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. It is not just to take the wife murderer or the twisted, bizarre criminal and not sentence him to a punishment suited for him. Justice demands this. And yet Christ, while men are in this time and this moment, gives all men everywhere a chance to repent and turn. Turn from your wickedness and live, but because of your hardened and penitent heart, he says you're storing up wrath for yourself. On the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed, for he will render to every man according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are factious, who do not obey the truth, but obey wickedness, there will be tribulation and distress. The ESV says wrath and fury to the human being, for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Paul says three words, three concepts, righteousness, self-control, and there is a certain judgment coming. He says this to Felix in an attempt to rescue him from his own delusions. There is no evidence that Felix ever changed. And he said, I'll kind of hear from you later, but he's scared. I see him in my mind's eyes, someone shaking in fear because of the quality of the character of this man who's talking to him. Everybody knows this is a danger man. Why is he dangerous? Because he's honest, straightforward, and truthful. That's always a dangerous man or woman. Let's bow our heads to pray. Oh Lord, we thank you that your son has died to give us, bequeath to us his righteousness. Secondly, Lord, we thank you that we are not self-controlled in and of ourselves. We cannot boast in that, and yet you delight to empower us beyond our own weak merits or strength to give us something that we cannot give ourselves. The very power of God unto salvation the cleansing of our sins, and a form of beginning resurrection as we're changed more and more into your likeness and glory, and we lose our lack of self-control, and you cre recreate in us a clean heart and renew a right spirit in us. And for everyone in this room, even if there's just one here, Lord, this morning, no drama, no nothing. We are all going to have to stand before the Lord 
and give account. And here's my account. Lord, I was crazy. I was lost. I deserved hell. But you were so kind and loving to me to grant me a righteousness not of my own, a cleansing that came from heaven granted to me for free as a gift. It wasn't so free in the sense that Christ died for me, but that is what I tell you. Christ died for me. Receive me, Lord. And he'll say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into my rest. And there will be others who hardened their hearts or shook their tiny fists in the face of ultimate love. And to this moment, they crucify the Son of God afresh. Oh, Lord, give such a spirit of repentance in our country and in our world that Christ is exalted and men are saved from the awful penalty of righteous judgment. Have mercy on us, pardon and forgive us. And if there's any, even one here this morning, Lord, A, have him admit he's a savior. She, he, whoever, B, believe Christ is the only savior. And then C, choose to follow him. I tell you, that man or woman will leave this room righteous, justified, clothed, and in their right mind because of Jesus. Amen.